This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Many things look different depending on which side of the Atlantic one is looking from. And that is especially true when it comes to religion in America and in ways many might find unexpected. Our guest today is Thomas Albert Howard, the Stevens Phillips Professor of History at Gordon College, where he also directs the Jerusalem and Athens Forum and the Center for Christian Studies. He holds the PhD in European Intellectual History from the University of Virginia, He's also studied and or taught at universities including Valparaiso University, the University of Freiburg in Germany, and the Humboldt University of Berlin, the University of Basel, and the University of Notre Dame. Professor Howard, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, it's good to be here. Thinking about the field of European intellectual history for most Americans is probably fairly easy, at least in terms of conceiving what the discipline is all about. But your particular specialization is looking at transatlantic studies. Talk to us about that. Modern history really begins with the uh, French Revolution uh, in um, uh, in Europe, and of course, a major revolution happens here, uh, you know, after 1776. Uh, and I've, I've just been interested in some of the the interplay and ideas of uh, intellectuals and ideas that have uh, had a purchase on the imagination on on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, uh, of course, with modern history, you have you have more transportation and uh, uh, much more cross pollination of. Um, ideas, and I thought that would just be a, something, a, a fertile and interesting area to explore. A good number of, of European historians in particular have given a lot of attention to the discourse and and cultural exchange that took place in the Mediterranean basin, and and yet you're arguing that the Atlantic is also a fertile place to look, and from that matter of, of comparison, there's been a lot of concourse, communication, and cultural exchange between the two land masses on either side of the Atlantic. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, I mean, it, and only accelerating, in, you know, into the 20th century. Uh, of course, you know, all the way up to you could trace it our, our hyper-connected uh, world today. But uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, the 19th century is especially interesting for for religious and theological matters, as they argue in my book, because uh, uh, despite all the exchanges, you still have some fundamental dif- differences uh, with respect to uh, uh, the historical terrain and the. Uh, the types of currents and thoughts that are shaping religious uh, and theological ideas. Professor Howard is the author of books including Religion and the Rise of Historicism, published by Cambridge University Press, Protestant Theology and the Making of the Modern German University, published by Oxford University Press, and his new book is entitled God and the Atlantic, America, Europe, and the Religious Divide, also published by Oxford University Press. Professor Howard, in this book, lays bare something that many Americans, including many scholars of American history and theology, might not really have given much attention to in times past, and and that is how Europeans, selected Europeans in particular, looked at religion, Christianity in particular, in North America, and especially in the United States. Professor Howard, I just have to ask you, how did you come across this research topic, which led to this most recent book? Well, in a, in a previous book, I had explored a theologian named Philip Schaff, who was a uh, Swiss-German. He uh, was born in Switzerland and educated in um, uh, in Germany, and he came to the United States in the 1840s. And that earlier book was on the German university, and uh, he actually wrote, wrote a book uh, to explain to English-speaking audiences uh, what was going on in the the very formidable German university system of the 19th century. But then I happened on some works and lectures he had given on American civilization once he had traveled back to uh, 
uh, to the so-called old world. And I became fascinated by this, uh, what you might call just the genre of Europeans explaining America. I mean, probably the, the best known example is Alexis de Tocqueville and his uh, famous travels in the 1830s and and uh, writings, Democracy, Democracy in America. But I, I discovered there's a there's, you know a, lar- a larger literature and and quite a lot of it focuses on uh, religious issues. But it was the the, the figure of Philip Schaff that uh, was sort of the entry point into the into the larger literature. Perhaps we should set as an intellectual foundation for this discussion that that at least the received wisdom up before the French Revolution, in terms of continental thought and for that matter also including Britain was that there had to be a unity between the governing authorities and the church. Otherwise, the society itself was, uh, if not uh, fatally, then at least uh, significantly compromised and weakened. And thus, when you look at the very beginnings of the United States as an experience, uh, as as a nation, of course, in its early period, even those early European observers could see that the United States was headed in a very different trajectory. That's true. Uh... I mean, going back to the, the Peace of Westphalia in Europe, and if one wanted to, you could trace it all the way back to Constantine. Uh, there was the assumption that the uh, political order was had a, a deep connection to the religious order, and it was the, the role of the uh, civil authority to uh, uh, to keep that um, uh, confessional identity. The European historians often speak of the, the late 16th to the 18th century as one of confessionalization, where uh, Europe was balkanized by different um, uh, Lutheran, Catholic, Calvinist areas. And that, of course, began um, in, in North America with the establishments, the uh, uh, Puritan establishments in New England and um, uh, Anglican establishments in, in Virginia and the Carolinas. But, um, you know, beginning with uh, uh, Roger Williams and just all, all the different groups that began to settle uh, what would become the United States, uh, the uh, uh, the, the whole notion of confessionalization uh, came under uh, came under fire, and then legally, with the the First Amendment, uh, it, it became no longer tenable. So, for, for the European imagination that was accustomed to that as the the, the normal order of things, uh, to see the the proliferation of different groups and the, the legal environment that made that possible, and I should say also just that the geographical expanse, the, the moving Western frontier. Um, uh, many were able to divine that this this meant very new things for uh, for Christianity uh, and religion in general. I was reading a European historian just recently writing about the French Revolution, and he made a very interesting point that uh, is kind of the continuation of, of your your argument about uh, the confessionalization of Europe. He points out that even the the French Revolution, in terms of its ardent secularism, was really not the rejection of of a state church. It was rather uh, a, a very forceful imposition of secularism as or, or rationalism as the state religion of of revolutionary France. I, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good corrective. You know, it's, it's easy to look at France and 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 the the French Revolution and see it as the setting loose of all kinds of things. When actually, insofar as the revolutionaries were concerned, it was really not the setting loose of many things, but of that one thing, and and that was official secularism. That's true, but I, I think that's one of the um, most profound differences uh, between the United States and Europe is just the the, the nature of religion and their respective uh, revolutions. I mean, there was a more moderate phase of the French Revolution, the early phase that produced the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, which does have a kind of a re- religious liberty or freedom of conscience clause. But by the middle part of the 1790s, the so-called Radical Revolution, when you have the terror and the guillotining and uh, uh, the, the 
what historians call de- de-Christianization. There, there was, a, for a period, an attempt to just really de-Christianize uh, France in the name of the Republican liberty and secularism. And uh, I, I think I think that is a very fair way of thinking about that. And, and that has really a long legacy in the 19th century of a much more assertive secularism, uh, anti-clericalism. I think you see that in the, in the 1905 um, uh, laws in France separating um, uh, church and state. Um, a, uh, a Turkish writer that I like uses the term passive secularism for the U.S. model. Uh, the First Amendment, trying to kind of create a, a, a just a, a modus vivendi of the various different religious groups and the more assertive secularism of France uh, that that does you know influence many other quarters of Europe. So uh, uh, and I actually even in, the, in, in my conclusion of my book I, I use the phrase secular confessionalism. So I, I do think there's something to that. Now, in your book, you quote a French observer of the United States from that uh, period of the very earliest uh, portion of the French Revolution, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, who said that the states of America are a country where there are 32 religions, but there is only one course at dinner, and it's bad. Uh, it, it was a wonderful anecdote or epigram for you to put with, within your book, but it really does make the point that it, it seems that a good many of these continental uh, observers are looking at America with a sense of concern, maybe even disgust, and uh, an amazement at, at the pluralism of the American experiment from the beginning. That's true. I mean, and Talleyrand, he's an interesting figure because he's sort of all over the ideological map uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the 1790s and uh, after. But uh, I, I think there, you know, he's expressing a uh, not, not a secular worry about the United States, but a kind of an older conservative uh, worry. I mean, he would have been coming in an environment where there was uh, you know, putatively one one faith in France, the Catholic Church, and to you know have spent a brief period in the United States, that that would have taken him uh, aback. But it would have been a very jarring thing uh, for him to see the, uh, 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 the the different groups, the different confessions in the United States, uh, the, the early makings of denominationalism. And Achille Murat, you also quote uh, in your book, who, who said uh, another observer. Uh, this, by the way, in 1832, quote, that looking at the, the physiognomy of the United States, its religion is the only figure which disgusts a foreigner, end quote. So well, what would be the nature of that kind of disgust? Well, I, I think it's sort of just a, a worry that society is becoming unhinged uh, if religion is the uh, the glue of society. And, and uh, there's something to this conservative critique that I, I, I want to uh, lift out and you know, separate it from some of its unsavory political connotations of throne and altar and kind of an arch conservatism. Uh, but there is a worry by conservatives that um, uh, without without a religious foundation, without a, a legal basis of that, uh, you're going to have uh, sort of just a kind of in, endless feuding sex and rivalries, uh, uh, jealous proselytizing, and uh, uh, and that, uh, you know, from the, from the European um, standpoint, the imagination, uh, that, that poses a real problem. But that does point out, doesn't it, in, in one way, the, the truly revolutionary character of the American experiment. Uh, you talk about the assumed uh, union of throne and altar that, that was very central to, to most European identities and, and uh, to the understanding of statecraft. And then you come to the United States, and from the very beginning, and we could point out that by the time you actually have the revolution, and then you have the constitutional era, era and, and, and then the, the early Republican era, uh, that's not just something that Americans invented. It was already a settled fact by the time the United States came into existence. That's true. I mean, I think you you already had that pluralism, and, and the First Amendment was just, in some ways, recognizing 
what was already there and the, the untenability of a national state church. Uh, so that reality was there, and it was it was recognized in the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I mean, I think what is really different between um, Europe and the United States is that the United States really did not have an old regime, this long history of uh, uh, you know confessional churches, throne and altar, church and crown. And so when uh, modernity comes, it, it doesn't really come in and start dialectical opposition to something that had come before, but it had, how do you put this, you know, more more breathing room, uh, more sort of a, a natural, uh, uh, you know, a, a less hostile environment to, um, you know, in which to and to exist. And so there wasn't that, you know, harsh anti-clericalism uh, in the religious realm that you see in Europe in the, in the 1790s and then really throughout the 19th century, uh, all, you know, directed against the Catholic Church. Uh, in Southern European countries, but you see it in uh, Northern European countries and, and in England as well. Now, before turning to ask a couple of specific questions about your book and its contents, let me ask you, why do you think uh, that at least until now, and I don't think this is at all an exaggeration, until your book, uh, from what I can tell the literature, no one actually asked this question before and looked at it quite the same way. Uh, once you've written this book, I have to say the question looks rather obvious. Uh, why do you think it was less so to many historians before? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, many historians, uh, you know, have been shaped by European models of, of social science and history and historical writing, where I, th I think sometimes just sort of the, the European path to modernity is, is taken to be kind of the normal course. And religious America is the odd, the odd man out, the problem, the, the historical laggard. And uh, so um, I, I'm sort of kind of turning a question uh, on its head and, and ask, asking a question about European secularity and some of the differences between uh, between the two. So you're right. I mean, I, I think there there may be been intimations of what I've done in other uh, other writings, and I I borrow quite a bit from the sociologist Peter Berger, who's asking more contemporary questions about this uh, this matter. But um, I think that's a perceptive question. I do think that a book like this can catch us by something of surprise. We, we read it and are informed by it, our, our thinking is reshaped by it, and our intellectual curiosities are fired by it. And one of the questions that comes to mind is, why didn't someone ask this question before? But that's what makes history so important as a discipline. It's not just that the same questions are being asked over and over again. It's that top-flight historical minds are attracted to new questions and, uh, of course, uh, to new periods of history and to asking very new questions about even some of the periods that we think we actually know a great deal about. There's always more to learn. A book like this makes that point emphatically clear. In his new book, God and the Atlantic, America, Europe, and the Religious Divide, Professor Thomas Albert Howard of Gordon College gives us a vantage point that otherwise we would not have. Uh, I have to tell you, one of the joys in doing a program like this is that I get to talk to people that I find very interesting and about books in particular that I find fascinating. And, and this book, like so many others, is one of those books that kind of jumps out and, and tells us something that we otherwise wouldn't know. And in particular, I found fascinating in this book uh, the way that Professor Howard looks at two different vantage points before looking at the two individuals that he chose to give closest attention to. I want to look at the two vantage points that he found two different patterns of response as educated, uh, enlightened, 
Europeans looked at the United States and its religiosity. The, the one was a conservative response amongst persons who simply looked at the United States and with a great deal of anxiety saw the, the fracturing of a unity, uh, uh, saw the, uh, the pluralizing of, of, of America's religious and cultural space in a way that they felt would endanger, on the one hand, the future of the church and also the future of any republic. And then on the other hand, you, you had this, this leftist response. If the first was a conservative response, the second is far more radical. Uh, made up of persons who looked at the United States from the vantage point of what they saw as a necessary and, if not inevitable, then certainly a much-to-be-desired secularization. And when they looked at the United States, they saw, well, anything but the kind of secularization that they both observed and hoped for in their native Europe. Professor Howard, talk about those two different responses and, and how you came as a, an historian uh, to detect those patterns of response. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the uh, job of good historical work is to uh, not only... Um, you know, narrate, but to analyze and 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 uh, provide patterns, and and maybe at some level, my uh, the patterns I detect break down. But I, I think there's at least something to these two categories. What I call the traditional critique of the United States, coming from those committed to state church, this type of throne and altar conservatism that I mentioned, uh, certainly coming from conservative voices from the Catholic Church, uh, ultramontane voices uh, and the whole school of uh, romanticism in the late 18th and 19th century, you see this type of uh, conservatism as well, that uh, uh, saw religion as a good thing, you know, would often look back to the Middle Ages as a, as a desirable time. And uh, for them, the, you know, the United States was sort of an artificial creation. It was unorganic. It was just constructed, thought up. Uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, you know, was an area where you know individualism uh, and pluralism could, uh, you know, you know had a, a long leash, and it was a real source of uh, uh, concern uh, for them. And I, I guess, in, in looking at you know different areas of Europe and these different strands of thought, uh, I, I was struck by the continuity of the type of critique they would make about the religious realm, and that, that's what led me to uh, to use this. Um, uh, this rubric of, of a traditional traditionalist critique. Now, by the way, about the traditionalist critique, uh, the, the content of your book is absolutely amazing to me. I, I was fascinated by reading, for instance, of the Italian Jesuit Giovanni Antonio Grassi, who became the first president of Georgetown College. It became Georgetown University there in, in Washington, D.C. In 1818, he wrote, Nothing is more striking to the Italian upon his arrival in America than the condition of religion. Due to an article in the federal constitution, every religion and every sect is fully tolerated. He then speaks about the danger of indifference, and then continuing at the end, he says, every sect there is held as good, every road is correct, and every error as the insignificant weakness of poor mortals. Uh, in accordance with such principles, it is not surprising if America gives birth to innumerable sects, which will daily subdivide and multiply, end quote. Now, that coming from a Roman Catholic could just as easily have come from a confessional Protestant, uh, from a right. continental perspective. Uh, they looked at the United States, and, uh, well, what they saw was the future that they found uh, rather alarming. Right, yeah. And, and in some ways, probably, probably prophetic. <laughs> they saw, uh, they, you know, they saw a lot of the different divisions and the, and the, and the, um, uh, extreme pluralism you do find in the, in the United States. I mean, he would have been coming from the, uh, uh, you know, the, the papal states, which was, you know, essentially a theocracy in the middle of Italy up until Italian unification in the 1860s and 70s. So, uh, the, uh, uh, the contrast between the, the, the papal states and the, and the U.S. First Amendment environment would have been, uh, would have been extreme to say the least. Well, I'm thinking back, uh, to, to the way many Americans w would have conceived religious liberty 
as a national priority and and uh, and commitment back in the early era from the way many Americans think of it now. Many Americans think of it now just as the right to set up your own storefront and uh, and and to have freedom of conscience. But Europeans might well remember, and uh, in in especially the European shaped Americans that 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 led the early period of of America's constitutional history. They understood that at least in many parts of Europe, if you had a religious disagreement in, in the public square, it ended up in war. And so, the, you know, the First Amendment to the Constitution was not only a recognition of a pluralism that already happened, it was, it was, a, it was a social compact that, that we don't have to fight wars over these things. We, we can actually tolerate this diversity within the republic itself. That, that's true. I mean, that's another good point. I mean, there, you know, there's been, you know, hostility and, and, and certainly some violence in the United States, but really nothing like the... Uh, uh, the you know the Thirty Years' War, the the English Civil Wars, where, that were uh, you know where the politics and religion were deeply and problematically involved in that. And uh, um, uh, I mean, in, in one way, I I think you could say that the United States had learned from the European experience in that regard, and that that was uh, one driving factor toward uh, toward the First Amendment. I think in the time of the Enlightenment, many of the secular-leaning thinkers of the Enlightenment would associate religion um, you know, almost completely with this type of kind of social anarchy and breakdown and war, and uh, and that can be a problem when it's exclusively associated with that. But um, I, I think that's another important difference uh, that you brought up, just the, the, the memory of religious warfare uh, being a, a, a point of difference, but uh, I think also a point where the, the United States, I, I hope, uh, had learned from the European experience. I was recently speaking uh, to, to the, the German government's minister for religious affairs, and, and I was rather surprised and uh, and yet also uh, kind of intellectually uh, uh, stimulated by the fact that uh, that in discussing the current shape of the German Republic uh, in terms of its, its reunification after the, the fall of the Iron Curtain, he had to bring up the Thirty Years' War in order to understand where they are today. Right. And, and, and you know, Americans, we tend to think uh, that World War II was ancient history. Uh, much less right. to realize that that in Europe, even today, many of these conflicts are, are matters of, of of fairly recent memory. Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, for those with historical sensitivities in Europe, the uh, the period of confessionalization. Um, I mean, really, I mean, Europe is a much secular place overall today, but the religious lines that were drawn in 1648, more or less, have remained the same up until up until the uh, up until the present, and uh, you know, for the shaping of. Uh, you know, Central Central Europe, the, the Thirty Years' War is a uh, is a very sad, uh, but a sort of important period for understanding. Now, in your your work, where you talk about the secularist critique, uh, if you will, from from the left came the critique of American religion, uh, seen from a European vantage point, that it was simply too religious, uh, simply too theistic, too confessional, and uh, the concern of many of these Europeans, going back especially into the middle point of the nineteenth century is that America was not and is not secular enough. Uh, to quote Karl Marx from his essay, The Jewish Question, in 1843, North America is preeminently the country of religiosity. But since the existence of religion is the existence of a defect, as he said, the source of this defect must be sought in the nature of the state itself. How characteristic or, or how indicative was Marx's view uh, seen from the European left? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, we're mainly talking about intellectuals here, and I, I think this line of criticism develops, uh, more slowly throughout the 19th century and becomes dominant in the, in the 20th century, uh, coming all the way up to the present. And it certainly finds its roots in the Enlightenment and, uh, thinkers associated with the French Revolution and, uh, August Comte and, um, uh, Karl Marx, uh, and others who, 
uh, for all their differences, uh, saw a kind of a logic to modernity going from the, the, the theological and the religious to the increasingly secular. And there was a sort of a, uh, appropriateness to this, this path of historical development. And when they looked at the United States, um, they, they sort of tried to impose this narrative uh, on America. But those who traveled to the United States, uh, a, a good example I cite in the book is a lot of a disaffected 1848ers. Europe experienced a, revol a failed revolution in 1848 that had a strongly secular component, and many left uh, after it, it did not succeed. And, and they thought they were going to find, uh, you know, the kind of Republican secular liberties they wanted in the United States. But what they found was you know, quite a lot of religiosity, and they began to scratch their heads. You know, this this is not the way modernity is supposed to work out. This is a you know this this is a republic. Why why isn't it secular? What's, what's going on here? And uh, this, there's sort of a, a bemusement, puzzlement, and often you know condescension that you see uh, in this. And you see this you know all the way up to the present, but it has it has a pretty long history. Now I want to well, ask you that you to answer a question, which uh, perhaps uh, you, you, as an historian you're you, you're going to want to answer very carefully in terms of uh, of your historical analysis, and uh, and, and that's good, but. How do you think they answered the question? In other words, uh, when they asked the question, why is the United States so different, uh, to what conclusion did they generally come? Oh, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, <clears throat> you know, probably different conclusions. I think many would point to, um, to the French Revolution, you know, uh, you know, as we discussed earlier, that they thought the American Revolution didn't quite deliver the knockout blow. Uh, to or the attempted knockout blow to religion that the French Revolution had uh, attempted, uh, and that it, it just did not have enough, uh, you know, uh, secularism in its DNA, and they thought that the, the European revolutionary tradition uh, had that, and that was a, sort of a congenital defect of the the American revolutionary uh, tradition. I, I think many would often point to the frontier too that. You know, religious groups could, uh, you know, they could just exist if they disagreed with one another. They could just hive off and form another, another community. Um, those that observe many of the revivals of the uh, we associate with the Second Great Awakening, uh, uh, you know, they would uh, see that the uh, American freedoms and frontier had enabled that in a way that was just very, very foreign to European visitors. Now, to what extent would their answer, perhaps at least the answer of some, been more political? That the absence of a king or the absence of a throne inevitably meant uh, this kind of what they would call religious chaos. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's there as well. I mean, I mean, most on the secular side would be, you know, strongly against monarchy uh, as well. So, I mean, they, they weren't looking to that as an ideal. Uh, you know, I, I think on the secular side, you know, even though they would be against the monarchy, they, they were still kind of looking off into a strong state to implement uh, uh, secularism. And in, in the United States, they found a fairly, you know, a fairly, a fairly weak state that, that couldn't do that and didn't even try to do that. I, th I think in one paragraph of your book, in your concluding chapter, you really, you really deal with this so directly. I want to read your own words back to you. Okay. Speaking about the, the perspective of those who were looking from the secularizing left, you write this. From this, this standpoint, America suffered from a congenital lack of secularizing impulses. There existed insufficient dialectical opposition, no attempted death blow to traditional organized religion, as had occurred in practice in the French Revolution and in theory in many of its successor ideologies and intellectual systems of the 19th century. You refer to America as the revival-prone young republic uh, that had, uh, had had not experienced the drama of atheist humanism. They're uh, quoting Henri de Lubac. And, and then you continued by saying, cultured despisers of religion occupying this political space have found in American credulity an inviting target 
her supercilious scorn. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's brilliantly put, by the way. And uh, that is true not just of historians, but of Europeans writing right now. That's true. I mean, you want to be careful, you know, not necessarily all Europeans. I think there, you know, there are many, there's a lot of uh, Philo-Americanism in, in Europe as well. But uh, I, I think that is a, you know, sort of a dominant um, attitude, you know, one will encounter. I, I remember going to a, uh, a, uh, uh, a talk at the University of Göttingen in Germany, and I actually I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, and I remember them sort of discussing the the Bible Belt, the Bibelgurkel, uh, you know, and you, you thought they were you know just discussing some type of savage civilization, and you know there I was sitting in the audience and, and knew German, and uh, uh, but you do find that kind of a haughty, um, uh, you know, that that kind of condescension. Again, you know, you know, be careful about generalizations, but uh, that that's certainly out there. Yeah, another sentence in your book that I thought just quintessentially distilled this. You write, America's multifarious sectarian religiosity has bewildered reactionaries and restorationists in favor of one side and of the European, uh, while on the other side, the strong survival of, of religion has confounded and disturbed secularists and progressives in favor of the other. So, I mean, there you have it. On the one side, you have those who are confounded and disturbed as secularists, and then you have bewildered reactionaries and restorationists. Uh, very poetically put. Thank you. But that really is not just something that is true of the era that you're looking at here. Uh, I would argue it's true that if, if, if you're looking at contemporary observers of the United States, now perhaps you'd have to look at it and say that, that we, there are fewer reactionaries and restorationists, but certainly in terms of some of the very contemporary British historians, you find a kind of a lingering influence of that, of that kind of judgment. That's true. I mean, this is sort of a hard argument to make, but I, I do try to make it at several points in the book that um, that it's not just a sort of a secular European critique of the United States, but it's a, it's a secular critique combined with kind of like a, a a ghost of this reactionary view, you know, still still there in some ways. So it's a kind of a uh, aristocratic hauteur and uh, assume secularism that kind of uh, comes together to produce, uh, you know, certain this this type of condescension that that I that I refer to. How did you come up with the two men whose work you examine most closely? You're referring to uh, Philip Schaff and Jacques Maritain. Yes. Um, well, again, I mentioned Schaff earlier as uh, being a you know a key entry point into the broader literature, and I dis I discovered Maritain. Actually, I'd spent a year at a research fellowship at Notre Dame, and I had studied um, some with the great uh, uh, Thomist uh, Maritain scholar. Uh, Ralph McInerney, yes. and um, I, I came even though once uh, Maritain's Catholic and Schaff is Protestant. Schaff is of the 19th century. Uh, Maritain is of the 20th century. Uh, they, they both seem to kind of overcome some common stereotypes of the United States. They both spent a lot of time in the United States, and, and they both wrote uh, quite a bit on um, uh, religion, politics, and uh, the United States, or, or at least in some of their writings. So I, I thought it might be helpful to um, compare them to uh, also to say that just that the, the the traditionalist critique and the secularist critique do not exhaust European attitudes of American religious life but there are other and, and both uh, of those figures are formidable intellectuals and I, I, I appreciated the, uh, uh, the the dimensions of their work that I, that I learned by reading your book I want to ask you when you look at these Europeans whether they're on the left or the right of the, of the kind of divide you put together, to what extent did they, looking at the United States, see what they saw was the future? Well, I mean, I thought, uh, you know, uh, many of them are uh, in, in detecting, the, you know, kind of pluralism and uh, individualism. I, I think they did uh, see something of the future. Um, I mean, I think that comes out in your book uh, as a fear on the part of some, the hope on the part of others. 
Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, you know, um, you know, and a hope for secularism too. I mean, I, I think in that regard, some of the European prognostications, you know, that, that they've been true in Europe, but they have not been true in the United States and in the and the rest of the world. As sociologists like Peter Berger and others uh, have argued, but I, uh, and I, I think they were, you know, many of them present in seeing a type of a. Uh, the, the kind of fathomless <laughs> pluralism, that individualism that we, we live with today, there there is uh, something they did detect, and and uh, that's important to recognize. In my conversation with Peter Berger in an early edition of this program, uh, Professor Berger pointed out that what modernity brought to the United States as a social experience was not so much secularization, but rather what he called pluralization. And, and then I read your book, and I realize that you're using in many ways the same categories to say, well, that really wasn't so much a new thing for the United States. If anything, it just shows how much the United States, in terms of its origins, was already a, a, a part of that modernity that was that was coming into being. Uh, certainly, that's true. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, in earlier periods, it was much more of a Christian pluralism. Uh, today, we have uh, I mean, Christian pluralism, right. but um, secular voices and, and you know, because of immigration, um, um, you know, uh, different religious voices in the United States, but I think uh, uh, early on you saw that the kind of uh, ideological, religious um, uh, heterogeneity of pluralism uh, was apparent quite early. Well, and you talk about, and I found this absolutely fascinating, even in, in very contemporary light, uh, light of contemporary developments, and that has to do with how these Europeans were fascinated with Mormonism. That's true. Uh, many were quite fascinated with uh, Mormonism as a um, uh, as, as, a, as a new religion, um, you know, m many compared it to uh, the emergence of Islam. Uh, but for, I mean, uh, uh, for those who you know, busied themselves either traveling or studying it, uh, it was a source of fascination. For, for many Catholics, they saw this as kind of just the reductio ad absurdum of Protestantism. Uh, and uh, I, um, I quote one book. It's called uh, uh, "It's a, a History of Protestantism," written by a very traditionalist Catholic author. Uh, in the 1850s, and uh, uh, it really, the, the book begins with uh, Luther and Wittenberg, and it ends in, in Salt Lake City. And uh, but the, the the title is, you know, just a, a history a history of Protestantism. And uh, the the point was to say that really that this 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 new uh, religious environment, Protestant shaped religious environment in the United States, gave birth to Mormonism, and therefore it was an, an attempt to. Uh, 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 you know, cast dispersion, uh, disprove Protestantism by, by way of this, by way of a history. No, I'm thinking of John Courtney Murray, the Roman Catholic, who in many ways kind of reshaped the thinking of the Roman Catholic Church vis-a-vis uh, -vis democracy, modernity, religious liberty back in the midpoint of the last century, who pointed out that, that the problem is, uh, and he, I think he was trying to reassure Roman Catholics here, he said the problem is, is that when most people see religious liberty, that they they are unable to draw the distinction between saying everyone's right and everyone's free to be wrong. That probably right. continues very much in the present. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He's a very important voice uh, on the Catholic side, along along with Jacques Maritain. Are both both are very influential in the in the Second Vatican II's decree on religious liberty. Now, thinking of this as an evangelical teaching uh, in, uh, in in an evangelical institution, if if you were just for a moment to to speak to American evangelicals, what would you say? It seems to you would be a concern or or some concerns that that evangelicals ought to have in terms of our own self understanding that would come to us from the research in your book. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, 
my read of evangelicalism, for all its strengths, probably a real weakness is uh, you know a sense of history or a sense of tradition. Uh, there's often a, an attempt just to to float free of the past and uh, you know do a, very, a lot of subjective uh, you know reading of the Bible. Uh, I, I think, especially the traditional voices that I mentioned, uh, you know, why I, I would not support their their throne and altar politics. I think they often do have a uh, uh, an acute acute critical eye on uh, uh, you know th- this type of subjectivism, individualism, uh, um, an, an attempt to you know escape tradition, which you sometimes find uh, in sectors of evangelicalism. Well, I found God in the Atlantic fascinating. And in and, and talking with an author, I, I want to ask the question, doing the amount of research you had to do for this book, uh, th- there's always a, kind of a superabundance left over. Uh, what remains, you think, after the publication of this book as research that, that you now know, perhaps uh, newly aware of, research that needs to be done yet? Well, I think there could be just, I mean, we mentioned Mormonism. Uh, I think I only uh, scratched the surface in looking at European views of Mormonism. Um, I, I mentioned earlier all these 1848ers. There, there was quite a few, uh, especially German-speaking groups that came to the United States and, and lived in the well, the upper Midwest. Uh, and they, they often founded these very radical, secular, uh, free-thinking journals. Uh, many of them only had short lives, but... Uh, since most of them were in German, uh, and most American students, American PhDs, don't really do uh, foreign languages that well, uh, I think there's some very interesting things that one could learn uh, about these uh, 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 these communities. So I, I think uh, uh, there's a lot more interesting things that could be done. Professor Howard, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you. Well, that really was an interesting conversation. And also, it's a reminder of the fact that you can read a book that can be a very different kind of intellectual conversation than a conversation with the author of the book. The author of the book himself has just a little distance from the book. And one of the very fun dimensions of this kind of conversation for me, a conversation with an author, is to be able to ask the author questions about the book that reveals things that you wouldn't just get from reading the book by itself. And by the way, I really want to commend you to read God in the Atlantic, America, Europe, and the Religious Divide, because you're going to find that it, too, will become an important intellectual conversation that begins with your own mind and then goes outward to the conversations you will then have. It is important to ask the question how others see us, and not just any and all others, but in the case of the United States, it's particularly fascinating looking at this era to ask how those who gave birth to the United States, those civilizational nations that that were the cradle of the United States, came to view this new and aborning nation. And it becomes clear, as Professor Howard's book lays bare, in terms of the view of American religiosity coming from the European side, that America was something of a puzzlement, something of an amazement, a horror to some in terms of their concern about all that had been set loose in terms of the pluralism of the American experience. And then on the other hand, Uh, the hope on the part of some that America was indeed the the shape of the future. I thought what was particularly helpful in Professor Howard's divide between the conservative or traditionalist response on the one hand and, and the more modernizing or leftist response on the other was that both looked at the United States as, number one, an important sign of things to come and an intellectual question that from their side of the Atlantic was both worthy of and demanding of some kind of answer. Now, when you look at the traditionalist response, it is really interesting, isn't it? Because we look at this and recognize 
that to talk about conservative, a word we so often use as we speak about conservatives and liberals, requires some context and definition. Those who, tr- who held to this kind of very organic continental conservatism, and, and you would in- include the, the more traditional British conservatives uh, in this line as well, they thought that if you broke the organic connection necessary for society, that connection between the throne and the altar, you were setting loose a- an experiment that would lead to the dissolution of a society. And, of course, after all of the kinds of conflicts that Europe and European nations and the United Kingdom had experienced in the previous centuries, you could see that it would make immediate sense that if you break that organic unity, you might very well bring disaster right into the center of your own nation. And yet, at the same time, America, from its very beginning, seemed to have something of an operational pluralism, and that both confounded and fascinated Europeans as well. From the traditionalist side, there were theological concerns that today's evangelicals would have to see as being, well, at least legitimate theological concerns. Concerns about the fracturing of the truth question in the midst of the political dynamic of pluralization. And that gets back to the question, to to allow the many, does that insinuate that all are true or that all are right? We looked at the Jesuit Grassi who said, look, if, if you have this kind of radical pluralization, then there's no way to say that one way is better than any other or one way more true than any other. Well, that's not true, but it is important to recognize that that is a very important question to ask. That is a real and present danger in terms of the the very existence of pluralization. Of course, the other side of that is we now look at Europe and recognize that pluralization was hardly limited to the United States. In that sense, it was something of a sign of the future. Looking at the question from what he identifies as the more secularizing left perspective, Well, there we look at the United States and we see the kind of exceptionalism that has puzzled sociologists and historians, observers of America for some time. How is it that as the the majority of the nations of of Europe, especially Western and Northern Europe, have become so radically secularized? How is it that since the United Kingdom, the British Isles have also become so secularized, even looking at North America, that Canada has become so secularized? The United States has been very defiantly resistant to that kind of trajectory. You see the frustration of someone like Karl Marx back in the middle of the 19th century. And yet at the same time, this is where someone like Peter Berger, whose name Professor Howard invoked, is really important to us. Because as he points out, well, it better be the concern of American evangelicals to understand that secularization can happen in ways that are outside of the worldview and belief system or in ways that are more inside. In other words, Uh, Many of our chief doctrinal and theological concerns can become secularized without uh, the ardent open hostility. Instead, what you can have in our context is the compromise of simply evacuating these categories of specific cognitive content. And on the other hand, what you have from this leftist response is is a look at the United States and perhaps, uh, well, condescension is, is the only word that really fits here. They looked at the United States and they saw that we were falling short of the future that they were certain must happen, that would lead to freedom and enlightenment and sophistication. Well, these are fascinating questions. Those two responses, of course, continue amongst us. It's more hard to find. It's more difficult to find that traditionalist response because uh, those kind of conservatives are pretty thin on the ground, whether you're talking about the continent of Europe or even Great Britain. The uh, the other side of the question, uh, the, the, the more secularizing leftist response, is much more present in terms of the European intelligentsia. But here in the United States, isn't it interesting to note that uh, both of these questions are still very much among us. Both of these patterns of response are still a part of our conversation as well, if not in the specifically European form, with the background of Europe's wars and, and Europe's union of throne and altar, 
than in our own very clear and present concern about uh, the survival of faith in America, about uh, the fate of sincere, deeply held doctrinal and, and theological theism in a world that's becoming increasingly secularized, uh, perhaps even beyond the dreams of those in the 19th century. Reading this book is like reading some others that have come out in recent years, books that require us to think more deeply not only about the past, but about the present. And maybe that's the very definition of an historical book, well-timed and well-fought. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.